I want to begin again with the concept that we talked about a little earlier, and that is the concept of the biblical story being a story of a covenant. Uh, and that covenant comes all the way through from Genesis to Revelation, the covenant that God wants to establish with his people. He wants a friendship with us. He wants to fulfill his promises towards us. And the Bible, when you take the Bible and you turn to the very first book in the Bible and you read there in Genesis chapter 1, what do you read about? You read about the creation. God created everything in the beginning and he created it very good. But then you don't get very far into the story. You're already just into chapter 3 and then you read about the conflict. The conflict where mankind decides to follow a different king, a different ruler. This is where we come, this, this is where we have based our theme on the War of Thrones, and the war already is introduced to us there in the third chapter, when mankind sides with the enemy of souls. But through the conflict that exists all the way from Genesis chapter 3, all the way to the book of Revelation, right through that conflict, God has not given up on the human race. And right in the midst of this conflict, he is reaching down his arm again and again and again, seeking to establish a covenant with us, seeking to reestablish the relationship that he had with us from the beginning. And so as we talk about the War of Thrones and as we talk about the great controversy in Scripture, um, we have to talk about the covenant because the covenant is right in the midst of all of this, this relational God that is seeking to befriend us and seeking to save us. Well, uh, it's going to be helpful for us to get a little bit of the structure of uh, Genesis tonight. And we're going to begin um, in uh, looking at uh, uh, how this book is built up. Because when we are talking about this covenant topic, the covenant topic comes, is introduced to us very strongly already in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. Now, the book of Genesis um, begins with the creation story. And then the next great event is really the fall. Uh, then you get a couple of chapters into the book of Genesis and you read about the flood. You've, you've heard about the story of Noah and the flood. And then a couple of chapters on in the story, you're now in chapter 11, you read about the Tower of Babel. And these are some of the big major events in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel. Now, did you know that just these uh, 11 chapters, that they actually span a time of 2,000 years? That's quite interesting. 2,000 years are covered in just merely 11 chapters. Then when you get to Genesis chapter 12, we are introduced to an individual by the name of Abraham. And uh, Abraham uh, becomes, throughout Scripture, a very pivotal and important uh, figure because he is called by God um, and God establishes a covenant with him. And this covenantal relationship is now passed down from generation to generation. And so the theme of the covenant really sets in in chapter 12 in Genesis when you get to Abraham. And uh, you know what? Actually, the rest of the book all through to chapter 50 of Genesis, it deals with Abraham and his descendants. Abraham, and then followed by Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph, and then, and then you get to the to people of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob become the 12 tribes, and, and you get the story follows this, this family line, and God is every time seeking to establish a covenant with his people. But just this helps us get a little bit of the structure here, 
merely 11 chapters covering some of the big events, creation, fall, and then the flood, and then the Tower of Babel. It's almost like the Bible is just racing to chapter 12 because now something very important comes, and this is this covenantal theme established from the beginning with Abraham. And then there's a lot of detail about the life of Abraham and the life of his descendants compared to the details that we have of those first events in the first 11 chapters. The chapter 12 to 50 is actually spanning only a period of 300 years. So that just gives you a little bit of a feel for it. 11 chapters, 2,000 years, 12 to 50, 300 years. And so we're going to have a look at um, this story of Abraham. And it's interesting because it comes right after the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, if you've read the story of the Tower of Babel, uh, it's an interesting story. Um, uh, God says to Noah and his descendants, I want you to multiply and spread across the face of the earth. There are people that come together and say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to build a city and we're going to build a tower. And this tower is going to reach all the way from earth to heaven. And there's a lot of interesting language in it all because they say in, in Genesis chapter 11, we are going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to become important. And by the way, we're not going to let God stop us from our goal of our achievements. And, and if there ever comes another flood, we'll be secure because we have this great grand tower. You know, and it's a tower that was to reach from earth all the way to heaven. I like to say this, you know, this is uh, salvation by works to its extreme. I'm going to make my way to heaven <laughs> by my own tower. But then God comes down and you read in the story of, of Genesis chapter 11 that he confuses the languages. Now, you know, you live in America and actually you have quite, you know, I must say that you have quite an easy life because you grow up with English and most people around you speak English and English is a global language and, and you can get around very well with English in the world. A lot of the books are written in English. But you know, I, I have actually been faced in my life by the complexities of languages. And maybe you have too as if you've traveled a little bit or, but you know, it's interesting because you know, I grew up speaking English, but then I had to learn Dutch when I, come to, when I came to the Netherlands. I had to learn German and French in school. Uh, I got I married a Norwegian, so I had to learn Norwegian. Um, I had to speak Swedish and Danish as well because it's the Scandinavian languages and as we travel through Scandinavia. So sometimes I say to my wife, I speak quite a number of languages, but sometimes I feel I don't really speak any of them properly. So if I make any mistake in my English, just know that I have a couple more languages to add, okay? So, but, the, but it can be confusing. And I've been to many different countries where I will speak and uh, I have to speak you know, a different language or I have a translator with me that, that, that helps me and, and that, that translates what I say. And uh, I'm just thinking like, wow, if, if, if that never happened, that story, then it would have been a lot more easy in this world today. But why did God do that? Why did God confuse the languages? Because he basically wanted them to spread across the face of the earth, to not be all gathered together in that one place in rebellion to him. Now, there's also a lot of theological content in these stories, because think about it. In Genesis chapter 3, there is a... Um, a break of a breaking of the relationship between God and man. And then when you get to chapter 11, there is a breaking of a relationships between people because of these languages now. And so a disconnection vertically, you could say, and a disconnection horizontally. And the question is, how is God going to solve this uh, problem? Both the disconnect with God and the disconnect between people. And this is so fascinating because then we get to chapter 12. 
And in Genesis chapter 12, right after the story of Babel, we are introduced to Abraham. And Abraham is called to pack his bags and to leave his country of origin and to go to a place that God has prepared for him. And it's very interesting what God says to him in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Listen to what God says. And now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And this is also interesting because in chapter 11, the people said, let's gather together, let's build a tower and we will make ourselves a name. In the very next chapter, God says to Abram, I want you to get out of your father's house. I wanted you to go to a place that I've prepared for you and I will bless you. I will make your name great. And look what else God says. He says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be what? Shall be blessed. Now that is a tremendous promise to make. That is a big promise. A promise made to Abram, through you, Abram, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. There's been a disconnect between, between uh, human beings and God in chapter three. There's been a disconnect between people, but now through Abram and the covenant that God makes with Abram and his descendants, the goal of this covenant, the, 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 the very reason of this covenant, covenant covenant is to reestablish this connection between people and the connection between God. Amen? That is, that's a beautiful promise. Now, I want you to hold on to that promise because we're going to get back to that as we continue in our study tonight. Now, let's just make a little jump to the, to the New Testament now, to the book of Galatians, and Paul writes something interesting because you might think, yeah, but why do we spend so much time in the stories of the Old Testament, and why do we spend time looking at Abram? Because don't we live in the New Testament times, and, and, and what does this all have to do with us? Well, right from the outset, as we, as we begin this journey together, I want you to note how strongly Paul urges upon us, the Apostle Paul, here in Galatians, that actually whatever happened to Abram is, is definitely connected to what God wants to do with us today. And he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 to 29, the following, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So what we are told here is that when we put our faith in Jesus, when we belong to Christ, when we have been baptized into the family of God, then we are connected to who? To Abraham. And the promises that were given to Abram are the promises that are given to us. We are in the family tree of Abram. We might not be uh, literally in the bloodline of Abraham. We might not be descent, of Jewish descent, um, but we are belonging to him because we have the blood of Jesus. We have the bloodline of Jesus. Amen. And so we have accepted Christ and his blood and we have become part of his family and we are now also part of Abraham's family. And the blessings that were promised to Abram are now the blessings that belong to us. Now, this covenant that God established with Abraham is based or experienced by, and this is a key word, faith. 
We're talking tonight about the battle of faith. We're talking about what faith really is. Abram had to have faith in God. When God said to Abram, I want you to pack up your stuff and follow me, God didn't tell him immediately where he was going. But God had a plan for his life and he had to trust God at every step of the way. That's the same experience that God wants to give to us today, that we walk by faith, even though we can't see the outcome of everything in our Christian experience. We walk by faith. We trust God at every step of the way. In Genesis chapter 12, we have the blessing that is pronounced there that would reach to many generations. But there was a little slight little problem, maybe not that slight, not that little problem, but Abraham had no child so God says, I'm going to bless your descendants and, and through you, there's going to become a nation that is going to, that is going to uh, bless the world and, and this covenant relationship is through you and your descendants. But just one problem, just one problem. Abram has no children. Abram is married to Sarai or later she becomes known as Sarah, Sarah and they have no children. Well, they just put their faith that God will one day give them a child, but years go by and still they have no child. Well, in Genesis chapter 15, God again comes to Abram and again repeats the same promise, basically, that he first gave him in chapter 12. And uh, this, this is from Genesis 15 in the first verses there in that chapter. It says, then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven, count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, this is God speaking to Abram, so shall your descendants be. So God says, you see all those stars? And you can imagine one of those nights where it's just a clear sky and Abram is looking up and of course he can't count the stars. There are so many of them. Of them. And then God says, you know what? Just like all of those stars that you're seeing right now, so shall your descendants be. And then it says, and he, Abram, believed in the Lord. He believed God and he accounted it, God accounted it to him for righteousness. And this is really a very key text in the Bible, because what God requires of you and of me is that we believe his promises. Amen? God gives us promises, and he expects from you and from me that we say, yes, God, I believe what you have promised. I believe what you have said, even, listen very carefully, if it seems humanly impossible. Now, for Abraham, it seemed humanly impossible because he had no descendant and they were getting older and older and they were, they were soon going to come to the time that, that childbearing would not even be an option for them anymore. But at this point of time, he says, okay, he believes God and God accounts that to him for righteousness and, he, and, he, and he, he's still holding on to that promise. But years go by and another year go by and, and it just continues and they still have no child. Well, when you come to Genesis chapter 16, there's an interesting story that takes place. Because in, in Genesis chapter 16, we are told that uh, Abram and Sarah, they come up with a plan. Because they think, okay, we're, we're, we're getting older and, and, and the promise is not happening. We're still we still have no child. So perhaps God just needs a little bit of help. And uh, so what the plan that they come up with, and Sarah really, you know, um, um, she, she makes this plan and comes with the plan to Abram and says, you know what, why don't you have a child with my maidservant Hagar, and then this will be the promised child, and this will be our descendant. And so Abram goes along with that plan, and he has a child with Hagar, and the child is named Ishmael. 
Ishmael. Now, that's chapter 16, okay? And so they think, okay, we've helped God. We have a descendant now. And through Ishmael, the promise will continue. And eventually, there will be a great nation that will uh, enter into that, that will have that covenantal relationship with God. And God will do what he promised through Ishmael. Well, not quite, because God had a different plan. God's plan was that Abram and Sarah would have a child. And so after chapter 16, you get into chapter 17, and I'm just giving you here the the big picture. You can go back and, and read this incredible story. In Genesis chapter 17, God comes back to Abram after the birth of Ishmael, and he says, Abraham, he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a child. And Abram says, yeah, but I already have a child. Ishmael, let Ishmael live before you. And God says, no, I'm going to give Sarah a child. You and Sarah are going to have a son. And uh, and, and guess what? The Bible says that Abraham laughs. He laughs at God. Have you ever laughed at God? Ha, God, impossible. You can't do that. Listen to what it says here in Genesis chapter 17, verse 15 to 19. Then God said to Abram, as for Sarah, your wife, she shall not, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed. There you have it. And said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He couldn't believe that God could do this. It was, humanly speaking, impossible for them to have a child. But then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And this is interesting. And God says uh, here, And you shall call his name what? Isaac, I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Take notice again of the covenantal language here. I will establish my covenant with him, with Isaac. That's the lineage. Now, do you know what the name Isaac actually means? It's interesting. It means to laugh. So, so this is kind of God's sense of humor here because, because Abram is laughing and saying, ha, you can't do that, God. Oh, yes, you're going to have a child with Sarah. And by the way, call him Isaac. Let's see how he's going to laugh now, <laughs> right? Can you imagine when Isaac was born and every time that, that Abraham and Sarah uh, called their child, Isaac, Isaac, come in. And, and they're reminded of, they're just smiling at, oh, we laughed at God, but now we're laughing with God. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's done. And sometimes, you know, think in your own experience. Sometimes you've maybe, uh, you know, been, been confronted by the promises of God. And perhaps you, you're even, maybe not literally, but maybe inside, you've kind of laughed at those promises. You thought, ah, it's impossible. It's not going to happen. Not for me. Maybe for someone else. Not for me. But God wants you not to laugh at him, but he wants you to smile and laugh with him when those promises are established in your life. Amen? And this was the experience that Abram and Sarah had. They could smile with God as they saw the promises established in their life. Well, you get to Genesis chapter 18, and the promise is repeated in chapter 18. And then finally, when you get to chapter 21 in Genesis, the promise becomes reality. Isaac is born. Now, uh, in Genesis chapter 21, verse 5 and 6, the Bible says the following. Now Abram was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, this is what she said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. 
What an incredible miracle. God has given them a child. Isaac is his name. And now they're smiling with great joy as they've seen the promise of God realized in their life. You know, again, when you get into the New Testament, it's interesting because in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, he is looking back on this story, back on the story that we just reviewed together. And he is writing about the faith of Abraham. And I want you to take notice what he writes about the faith of Abraham. Now, remember the story that we just heard about. The story about Abram, okay, first he believed God, uh, but then he doubted God, and then he sought to help God, and that ended in kind of a mess, and then, and then eventually he, he trusted God, and then, and then the child is born. Now take notice, with that story in mind, take notice what Paul writes about Abraham in Romans chapter 4. This is very encouraging. Look at this. He says, who contrary to hope, this is speaking about Abram, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced. Uh, did he read the same story that I read? being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, the first time I'm reading that, I'm thinking like, okay, Paul, you're putting him in a very good light here. Are you with me? Like, like didn't he doubt? Uh, wasn't there a moment that he was not fully convinced? But this is the beautiful thing. Now, listen, if you, didn't, if you don't get anything else tonight, I hope you get this point. When you put your faith in God's promises, guess what? That is what God will remember. Amen? That is what God will remember. There might be chapters in your experience where you have wavered at the promises of God. There might be chapters in your experience that you've doubted the promises of God. There might be chapters in your experience where if you turned your back on God. But if you put eventually your faith in his promises, then in the final account, when your life is being reviewed, just like Paul is reviewing the life of Abram, guess what he remembers? He remembers his faith. Isn't that encouraging? That is the God we serve. He wants to remember the very best about every single one of us. And you can fast forward the story in the New Testament and you get to the book of Hebrews and there's an amazing chapter in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, that lists all these people that live by faith. And guess who's in the story? Sarah's in the story. Now, uh, we didn't read the verse, but actually Sarah also laughed at the promise of God. She laughed at the promise of God. She, she was the one that came with the whole plan that Abram would have a child with Hagar. Well, what does the Bible say about Sarah? How does the New Testament review the life of Sarah? Take notice of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. You see, this is what God remembers about Sarah. This is what God remembers about Abraham because they put their faith in him and he will, he will cast all of our unbelief and all of our sins away and he will remember the faith that we put in his promises. Amen? Oh, we want to we wanna be part of this story that our lives, even though we've had our failures, that, that, that we cling to the promises of God, that we don't give up, that that may be our legacy in the end. Faith in his faithfulness. We must put our faith in his faithfulness, faith in his ability to do what he has promised he will do. 
Now, we see God's faithfulness on display despite of man's unfaithfulness. This is the whole story of the Bible. God is faithful. He keeps his covenant. Even when man fails, he is there to pick them up and to lead them on. He is faithful despite of man's unfaithfulness. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, the Bible says, Now, all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul writes this and he says, you know, all these stories that we have in the Old Testament, all these amazing characters that we read about in Scripture, these things happen to them as examples. And, and we that are living now, and we, of course we can apply this verse to us even living today, we can look at that and we can say, okay, we have all of these people in the past. Actually, what they experienced are examples of how we can live out our faith in these very days as we are waiting for the coming of Jesus. These stories provide illustrations and examples of how we should choose God despite of, despite of the difficulties and trials that face us. Even the failures are also stories of, 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 of what, we can, what, what we should um, um, try to avoid. And, and, and at times, even these stories of failures are speaking to our existence as well. Someone else has gone through what I went through right? And then we can choose again to connect ourselves with the one that is faithful through it all. Well, we're going to continue to look at this lineage because there's so much depth in this. We move now from Abraham to Isaac that was born, and Isaac had a son, well, he actually had two sons, uh, Jacob and Esau, but actually the, the promised co covenantal um, continuation of the lineage is through Jacob. Now, this was a little bit like um, there was quite a struggle there because uh, actually Jacob was not the oldest. You might remember how the story went. There were actually twins. And so when, um, when the birth of uh, Esau and Jacob is about to happen, uh, Esau comes out first, but then Jacob is, is holding on to his heel. You remember the story? And so um, he's the oldest, Jacob is the youngest, and yet there was this prophecy almost from the very beginning that Jacob would somehow, you know, steal that birthright from his brother. Well, that's exactly what happened. You might remember the story. Um, you know, uh, Isaac thinks that his last days have come, and so he wants to now bestow the blessing upon uh, his oldest son, and so he calls his son Esau, and he says, go out, uh, you know, uh, prepare me a meal, go and hunt something, prepare me a meal, bring it in, and I will bless you, and I will pass to you the birthright. Well, while he's gone, guess what? Jacob, uh, he, uh, he comes in, he sneaks in, and, and the eyesight of his father is, is not that good, and he's disguised himself, made himself appear as Esau, and he takes the birthright, the blessing. Well, when he steals it from his brother, he has to flee because his brother is so angry and wants to take his life. And so he flees, and he, and he lives with his uncle Laban for about 20 years. Uh, he gets married there, he has children there, and eventually now he makes his way back to his country. And on his way back, he hears about his brother that is coming with 400 soldiers. And they're about to face off. And he thinks, oh, I've deceived my brother. This is 20 years ago. What's going to happen to me now? Am I going to lose my life? And, and, and then there's this chapter, this pivotal chapter in Genesis, where he is praying the night before he meets his brother. And he's all alone. And he's right there out there just pleading with God for his protection. And he feels a hand on his shoulder. And he thinks it's maybe, maybe one of the men of Esau. So he turns around and he starts wrestling with this man. And he's wrestling and wrestling throughout the night only to find out that he's not wrestling with a human being. 
He's wrestling with an angel of God. And, and when he realizes that, that this is a supernatural being here that he's in contact with, he clings to that being and he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And something happens there because this heavenly being says to Jacob, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but it shall be Israel. Now, when you, when you think about the, 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 the word Israel, the first time it appears in scripture is right in this story, in Genesis. And here uh, it is given to an individual by the name of Jacob. So Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Do you know what Jacob means? Jacob, the name Jacob means to be uh, the supplanter, the deceiver, as it were. So, uh, you know, he, he, he held on to the heel of his brother. Okay, this guy, we don't know what he's gonna do later in life. Well, it ended up, he did actually deceive, uh, you know, his brother. But now his name is changed from being deceiver to being Israel. Do you know what Israel means? Israel means to be victorious with God. It means to reign with God. The name was first given to an individual who gained a spiritual victory as he clung to God and says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And this is important because when we talk about Israel in prophecy, we need to know where Israel had its starting point. Israel had its starting point with Jacob. Jacob had a name change to Israel, the one that is victorious with God. And now here starts the history of Israel. Of course, it already started with Abraham, but you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. And how many sons did Jacob have? Do you remember? He had 12 sons, which later became the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Now, of the 12 sons of Jacob, the story now, uh, it, it kind of, it, it, it's, it like focuses in on one of those sons. And that is a young man by the name of Joseph, right? The, one of the sons of Jacob. Now, interestingly enough, you might, you might remember the story. Joseph is kind of the favored son of his father. Jacob is like, you know, taking better care of, of, of Joseph than anyone else. You know, he makes him this beautiful robe of many colors. His brothers are furious. They are uh, they're indignant about the way that, that he is treated, and so they want to get rid of him. And when the opportunity arises, they sell him, and he is taken off to Egypt. And then in a course of miraculous events, and I don't have time to go into all of this, you can read it in the book of Genesis, he goes from being a slave to the second in command. Fascinating story. You can go back and read it. And then when there is a famine in in, in the country of Canaan, and his brothers come to buy, you know, to, 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 to buy food in Egypt, they meet with Joseph. Joseph tests them, but eventually reveals himself to them and takes care of them. And so the whole family of Joseph is now in Egypt. As years go by, things seem to be pretty well. Things go well in Egypt, but then the turn tide, the, the tide turns, and the Pharaoh becomes now enraged against these people and, and, and makes them slaves. So they become slaves, and they are slaves for hundreds and hundreds of years until who comes around? Moses, right? Moses, and you know the story of Moses. Actually, the name Moses means the one that is picked up out of the water, remember? The princess finds Moses, picks him up out of the water, draws him out of the water, and he becomes one, the one that draws the people out of Egypt through God's help. And so this is just a little history of, of Israel because it's important to understand these things when it comes to the prophetic interpretation of, 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 the, of uh, Jesus and Israel and to understand the covenantal relationship. 
Now, it's also interesting that the whole history of God's people is connected to what we spoke about yesterday, the sanctuary. Remember that in the wilderness, when they come out of Egypt, out of slavery, what does God do? He says, I want you to make me a sanctuary. Now, the first sanctuary that was established in the wilderness, it's quite fascinating. When you read the book of Exodus and you come to the very end of the book of Exodus in the 40th and last chapter, it says that when they finished building the sanctuary, everyone is gathered together and they have this inauguration of the sanctuary. And guess what happens? God reveals his presence in a very in a very physical way the shekinah glory the glory of god comes down and they all see that god is with them well you fast forward the story they are in the wilderness for many years and then eventually they come into the promised land and uh, they establish a king over them king saul and then he has a son king david and king david has a son king solomon and what does solomon do solomon builds the temple in jerusalem which is kind of a replacement of the sanctuary in the wilderness now they have the temple in jerusalem and when they inaugurate that temple and you can read about this in first kings chapter eight guess what happens they they're all there and you can just imagine the anticipation god showed up when we had the sanctuary in the wilderness, will he show up now again? And as he has this dedica dedication prayer, guess what? God shows up, fire comes down from heaven. God manifests his glory in their midst as they um, inaugurate the, the temple, the first temple in Jerusalem. Well, then you have this whole story of the kings in the Old Testament up and down. It's kind of like a roller coaster ride, a good king, a bad king, a good king, a bad king. And then towards the end, just lots of bad kings. They turn their back on God. They turn their back on the covenant and things are going very bad. And then what happens? Well, then you get to the time of the captivity. So the people of God are taken captive. Jerusalem is destroyed. They're taken to Babylon. They spend 70 years in Babylon. The story of Daniel is taking place there. Then they come back after the 70 years and now they rebuild what we call the second temple. The first sanctuary in the wilderness, then the first temple in Jerusalem, and now they build the second temple in Jerusalem. And, and there's this fascinating moment because as they build this, this, this temple in Jerusalem, what do you think they expect? God is going to show up. God showed up in the, when we dedicated the sanctuary in the wilderness. God showed up when we dedicated the first temple in Jerusalem. Certainly, he's going to show his manifestation again right now. And then something happens. Take notice in the book of Haggai, chapter 2. Haggai was a prophet of the Lord at that time. And he's right there as they are about to dedicate this temple. And guess what? God does not show up physically. There's no manifestation of glory when in the, uh, during the inauguration of the second temple. But then Haggai comes with this prophecy. He says the following, and I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The Listen to this. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. So as the people are somewhat sad about that there's no manifestation of God's glory, the prophet gives a prophecy and says, you know what? This latter temple shall be greater than the former. And here I will do something special. I will show my glory. Now, 
and, and, and he's referring to the desire of all nations that would come. Who do you think he's referring to when he says the desire of all nations will come? The glory will fill the temple. Who do you think he's referring to? Jesus. Jesus is the desire of all nations. He is the one that would fill this temple with glory. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was, was born into this world, he was, incarnate, he was incarnated, God incarnated as a human being among us. It was when he was 12 years old that his parents took him to the temple. And you can imagine that moment when he was going to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem for the first time as a 12-year-old boy. When that 12-year-old boy entered into that second temple, the glory had filled the temple. Jesus was in the temple. So the glory filled the temple. No one noticed it this time. Oh, when they were years back when they were in the sanctuary in the wilderness, everyone saw the glory. When they dedicated the first temple, everyone saw the glory. The second temple, the glory filled the temple when Jesus entered and no one knew it. No one knew it. He was veiled in humanity. Now, now, now this story of Israel that we've been going through together here, it gives us now a, a, a platform to understand some of the work of Jesus connected with prophecy. Because when you come to the New Testament book of Matthew now, so now I've, I've just given you like, like a, a quick overview of the Old Testament and some of the main events of the Old Testament from Abraham all the way to Jesus. Now, when we come to the New Testament and, you, and, you, and you've turned that pivotal page from the Old Testament and then into the New Testament, some people, sadly, many Christians, they think that this is all we need. And so they go from the last book in the Old Testament, they go to the New Testament and say, okay, here we are. This, this, this former part of the Bible is maybe not so important for us. But you make a big mistake because this part of the Bible, the New Testament, can only be understood in the light of what has happened. Are you with me? And you know, there's a part of the Bible that most people skip. Let me say what that is, genealogies. You know, when you get to the genealogies, this person begot this person, begot this person, begot this person. Uh, I'll be honest with you, I've done the same. You know, you come to those chapters like, okay, I'll just skip that reading for now. But do you know that there's actually some interesting things in there as well? Because when you come to the New Testament and you come to the book of Matthew, the first uh, book in the New Testament, the first gospel book, guess how it starts? The very first verse in the book of Matthew, chapter one, verse one, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, listen to this, the son of David, the son of who? Abraham. So it links us back to who? Abraham. The first verse in the New Testament links Jesus to who? Abraham. 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 God said to Abraham, uh, you know, every, everything's gone wrong. There's a disconnect vertically. There's a disconnect horizontally. But Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. I'm going to bless them through you. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and history is going on and everyone is waiting for that blessing to happen. Everyone is waiting for, 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 for that great blessing to come upon the world. But sadly, it has not come. And, and the covenant has been broken and captivity has taken place and everything seems dark. There haven't been any prophets for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and the world is waiting for that blessing and now Jesus comes on the scene and the first verse in the New Testament says he comes as the son of Abraham. And this is the connection. There's also some, something else interesting in the first chapter of Matthew because it gives us a little bit of an overview of the uh, generations that have uh, preceded. It says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David are how many generations? 14 generations. From David unto the captivity in Babylon are how many generations? 
14. And from the captivity of Babylon unto Christ are how many generations? 14. Okay, so three times 14, or in other words, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7. So we have six sequences of seven or three sequences of 14. So in other words, we're waiting now for the seventh seven. Now, the, word, the, the number seven has always been a kind of fascinating number when you look at the Bible. You know, seven days, uh, six days of creation, seventh day Sabbath. There's, there, the, the number seven kinds of, kind of indicates this, this fullness, this, this perfection, number of perfection in many ways. And now, after all these generations, the one that the world has waited for has finally arrived. Jesus has been born. Now, there's, there's the story of Matthew is one of, the, one of the most fascinating stories ever written. Because what Matthew does is masterfully, he writes the story of Jesus. And he shows us that Jesus is the new Israel. What Israel did not accomplish, Jesus now accomplishes. And the very way that Matthew writes is, is intent on showing us that Jesus is repeating the story of Israel. But everywhere where Israel fail, failed, Jesus succeeds. Let me show, show this uh, quickly, um, uh, some points of how this comes out in the story. So we're now past the genealogies of chapter 1, and we get to Matthew chapter 2. And take notice what takes place here. Now, you might remember that, uh, you know, Jesus was, was born there in the manger in Bethlehem, and then his life was, was threatened by King Herod, because King Herod heard about this king that was born, and so he decided to send his soldiers and take the life of every child under two years old in order to get rid of Jesus. You remember that? Now, take notice what the Bible says here in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 to 15. Now, when they had departed, and these were the wise men that, that were visiting there, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Appeared to who? Joseph. Joseph. Okay, so who is Joseph? The father of the earth, the, 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 the father figure, we could say, of Jesus, right? The father figure of Jesus on this earth. Okay, so that's Joseph. Uh, Joseph has a dream. Okay, so, so do you remember anyone in the Old Testament called Joseph that had a dream? Yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't the Old Testament someone called Joseph that had a dream. Okay, just hold on to that, okay? So the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee to which country? Egypt. To Egypt. Okay, so we have a story in the Old Testament about a Joseph that had dreams that led him into Egypt. Here in the New Testament, there's another Joseph that has dreams that leads him into Egypt. Okay? Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt. Stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the child, young child to destroy him. Now, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, departed for Egypt, and was there, listen, listen to this, until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, now what, what, what Matthew is doing here is he's saying, he's taking the story of Jesus, he's saying Jesus went to Egypt through a dream given to Joseph, he spent some time in Egypt, he came out of Egypt, and then he links the event of Jesus coming out of Egypt to something that a prophet has written. Now, which prophet is, uh, what has the prophet written? The prophet said, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, which prophet is he quoting here from the Old Testament? He's quoting Hosea. And Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1 says the following, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, they had always applied the scripture to who? To the nation of Israel to the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt. But Matthew, in his interpretation, led by the Spirit of God, says, okay, yeah, that, that's an application, but let me give you another application. Jesus is coming 
out of Egypt. And when you follow the story, it's quite fascinating. Jesus repeats the history of Israel. A man by the name of Joseph has dreams. The dreams lead him to Egypt. This is the Old Testament story. He remains in Egypt for a time. His family is called out of Egypt. A death leads them out of Egypt. And, they, and, and, and interestingly enough, when, they came, when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, they had to pass through the Red Sea. You remember that? And they passed through the Red Sea. And in the New Testament story, Jesus goes into Egypt, stays some time there, comes out of Egypt, and guess what's the very next event in the book of Matthew? Matthew chapter 1, genealogies. Matthew chapter 2, Jesus going into Egypt and coming out of Egypt. Matthew chapter 3, what's the event in Matthew chapter 3? The baptism of Jesus. He passes through the water. Later, actually, Paul interprets the Red Sea experience as an experience of baptism. He links those two events together. Well, they go through the water, and then when Jesus gets out of, up out of that water after his baptism, he hears the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then, what is the next event? Matthew chapter 4, right after the baptism, the very next event that you read about in chapter 4 is that Jesus goes into the wilderness. Okay, so the people of Israel came out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea, and then they spent how long in the wilderness? 40 years. Jesus goes through a dream of Joseph into Egypt, comes out of Egypt. He goes through the waters of baptism in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Where is he in chapter 4? He's in the wilderness. How many days? 40 days. A day for a year. So Jesus is repeating the story of Israel. He's in the, in the wilderness for, uh, for 40 uh, days. And guess what? During those 40 days, he is tempted by the enemy. Now, were there temptations that came to God's people when they spent those 40 years in the wilderness? Definitely. Um, did they, did they, were they victorious over those trials and temptations that came their way? Well, not really, right? Did you know that there was a book written to help them overcome while they were in the, in the, in the wilderness and, and, and help them to, to understand how they could hold, take hold of God's promises while they were there? It was the book of Deuteronomy, written by Moses. Well, guess what? When Jesus is in the wilderness... For those 40 days and he's being tempted by the enemy guess what book he's quoting he quotes the book of deuteronomy three times when he's tempted he quotes the word of god and he succeeds where israel fails and then if you look at what happened after the temptation of jesus in the wilderness the very next chapter matthew chapter 5 jesus gets up on a mountain and he has a sermon, one of his most well-known sermons. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount. And here, what he did, when, when, when Israel came out of Egypt and they went through the Red Sea and they came into the wilderness, they received the law of God from Mount Sinai. What Jesus does is when he comes out of Egypt and he goes through the water and he goes through the wilderness 40 days, he gets up on a mountain as well. And guess what? On that mountain, on that mountain, he is now the interpreter of the law. And he says, you have heard that it was said of old, ye shall not, and he quotes the commandments. But I say unto you, and he gives the, the meaning of the commandments to the people. And so all of this is just to show us that the promise that was given to Abram is now established in Jesus. The blessing is now being given. The 12 tribes were called 
to pass on God's blessing to the entire world, but they failed. Now Jesus brings the blessing. He's the descendant of Abraham that is now bringing the blessing that Israel could not bring. Are you with me? Now, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, you have the Sermon on the Mount, and that is followed by an interesting scenario when you get to chapter 8. Jesus heals a leper, and he heals also the servant of the centurion. Now, there was something interesting because uh, Israel was keeping the blessing to themselves. They were called to be a light unto the world, but they were rather keeping away the other nations and keeping the blessing for themselves. Jesus comes and he is now reaching out to the outcast. He's reaching out to those that are marginalized, those that are on the side of society, those that no one wanted to reach out to. Jesus is establishing the promise that the healing message of of, of, of God would go to all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth. Where Israel was faithless, Jesus is faithful. Now, now this is important because with this background, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, unfortunately, a lot of confusion today when it comes to the role of Israel in prophecy. There are some Christians, well-meaning, that are actually waiting for predictions uh, in the Bible to take place in geographical Israel today. Now, now, let me say this. I believe that this is a mistake. I believe that, that when we look at the, 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 the prophecies about Israel, they are prophecies that have been fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus has done what Israel could not do. So that when today we have prophecies about a, a, a nation in the end of time, it is not located in a specific place in the world, but it's rather talking about those that belong to Jesus by faith. Now, that doesn't mean that, not, that, that, that there are no significant things that will happen in that region. I'm sure there will be significant things that will happen in that region. But this is not the place where we should have all our attention on when God has shown us that the true Israel is now a worldwide movement of those that follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, back to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26 to 29, it says, For you are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of well-meaning Christians that have their eyes on Israel. What is Israel going to do? What is Israel going to fulfill of prophecy? Let me tell you something. Israel is you and I by faith. Israel is those that have put their faith in Christ. Jesus is the new Israel. Just like Jacob had his name changed from Jacob to Israel, and he had 12 sons, which became the nation of Israel, so Jesus comes along, and out of Jesus comes a generation of those that put their faith in him. And then it's neither Jew nor Greek. It's neither slave nor free. Nor free. It's neither male nor female. Now it's all about being in Christ. Amen? So these final prophecies regarding Israel are regarding those that have put their faith in Jesus, those that are beginning to be one with him at this very moment in time's history. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says, For all the promises of God in him, in Christ, are yes, and in him, in Jesus, amen, to the glory of God through us. All those promises that have been given through Abraham, they are promises to you and to me. 
They are promises to those that have put their faith in Jesus. Both Jews that have put their faith in Jesus and non-Jews that have put their faith in Jesus because we are all one in Christ Jesus. And those promises are sure because the greatest promise of all was fulfilled when Jesus gave his life on Calvary. When Jesus gave his life on that cross, that was the greatest promise that he fulfilled. And when that happened, you can be sure that all the other promises that have been given will also be fulfilled. And the question is, will you put your faith in his faithfulness? He will enable you to fight the battle of faith. Jesus has overcome. The blessing that was going to be given to the world that was promised to Abram has been given. It has been given through Christ. And all those that belong to Christ by faith are privileged to spread that blessing into the world today. I want to close with this passage in Ephesians chapter 6 because I believe it sums up the, the, the experience that God wants to give us as we walk by faith, as we enter into that covenantal relationship with God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 to 18, it says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Think about that. We, when, we, when we're having this, this battle in our lives, it's not actually a battle with human beings, it's a battle with spiritual powers. And in this war of thrones, we can decide to be on the winning side, on the side that has already conquered, and that can give us the strength to conquer as well. But we have to put on the armor that God gives us. And it describes this armor for us in this passage. It says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith which, which, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. This is the armor of God that God provides for us. He says, okay, you want to be on this team, you want to have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, here's the armor, put it on. Spiritually speaking, we are to equip ourselves with that faith and the sword, the spirit, the word of God, and, and the message of salvation. And, and this enables us to go through life and to hold on to Christ and to be that light in the world that he is asking us to be. This is the last text I want to share with you tonight, Romans chapter 8, verse 26. It's been a great encouragement to me many years because maybe you sometimes go through life and, 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 and you want to be close to God and, and you want to spend time in prayer and, and you want to, to have that faith-filled life, but, but sometimes you feel that your prayers are just hitting the ceiling and, and they're not getting anywhere else and, and you just feel sometimes that you wonder if it really makes a difference. But listen to what the Bible says and encourages us, us with here in Romans 8, verse 26. It says, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. In other words, God knows what is in your heart. And when you come to him in prayer, and when you are fighting those battles of faith on your knees in prayer, 
Even if you're not always able to utter the right words, even if you're not always able to, 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 give into, to put it into words what actually is taking place inside of you, then there is the Holy Spirit that is interceding on your behalf. Isn't that an amazing encouragement? A great encouragement so that we can know that God is with us in this battle. I hope this presentation tonight has been helpful as we have looked at the history of Israel and we've looked at how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that were given. And Jesus is now the new Israel. And when we become part of Christ, we become part of the family of Abraham. Each one of us sitting here today, by faith, you are part of Abraham's family. You are part of the new Israel. And you can partake of all the promises that have been given in the past. They are your promises today. Amen? And you can decide to say, yes, I want to claim those promises. I want to live by faith. I want to have the armor on me so that I can meet the temptations and I can be victorious in Christ Jesus. Amen? Okay, let us pray in closing, shall we? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for being with us. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for blessing our study tonight. Lord, as we've looked at a historic picture of your people in the past, we want to thank you that where they were unfaithful, you were faithful. And Lord, we know that in our lives today, many times we come short. Many times we turn our back on your promises, but we thank you that you are faithful and that you give us new opportunities and new chances. We thank you that even now you are inviting us to belong to you, to follow you. Help us to make that decision. Help us to put on that armor of faith and to live in that covenantal relationship with you. Thank you that we can be part of, new, of the new Israel that you have established. And Lord, I pray that we may be partakers of all your promises, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.